Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Wired. This is a show where we drink lots of coffee and talk really fast about things that really bother us a lot. And hey, oh my God, I went to the grocery store today and they didn't have any taco shells left and I had to get the soft taco shells and I hate them. I like the crunch. I like the crunch. Wouldn't that be terrible, folks, if that was the show? Wait, I got to tell you, you know what my guilty pleasure is lately? God. Watching videos of people freaking out when they're asked to put a mask on in a store. And I walk away so angry at how stupid people are, but I also at the same time, it's so fucking entertaining. And it's always, it's always this. It's always, I have my rights. You can't take away my freedom. I have freedom. Yes. You have the freedom to um, not go into the store. You have the freedom to stay home. You have the freedom to go to a COVID party if you so choose and Mm -hmm. get yourself sick there, which has unfortunately happened to a few. Folks, this show isn't about people who drink lots of coffee. And thankfully, it's a show that has nothing to do with pandemics. Instead, this show dives into the weird and unexplained, the creepy and sometimes uh, obscure films and television shows. Yeah, and missing yet again is our producer, Bonnie, who we've been told is somewhere uh, in the Appalachians. Actually, she's not. She just texted me. She's at a clinic in Arizona, and she claims when she's coming back, she's going to look 24 years younger. That's incredible, because then she'll look like a two-year-old. Some women go for that. That's the look they want. Benjamin Button. All right. So, Riley... For the episode today, I thought I would throw a curve. You did something very nice last week. It was not dark and sinister. It was a a nice story. But ergo and the surgeries, the faith healing that he performed, and I liked that a lot. I was thinking for this week that we would do something a bit different again. And I, what I wanted to talk about was something called the third man factor. Have you ever heard of that? No, there's an... Orson Welles movie, though, called The Third Man, I think. Has nothing to do with this. Good. Yeah. He, to me, is a little overrated. Am I? Is that terrible that I think that? It's of a time. I don't know. I love Citizen Kane. I don't. I, I, I can appreciate it. There's some amazing cinematography. And I, w- I wouldn't, if you asked me to create a top 20 film list, it ain't on there. I, I get that. I get that. It's a slow movie. It's a weird movie. Like I would rank my first five films would all be Big Trouble in Little China. It always comes back to fucking Big Trouble in Little China. I can't get away from that movie. Yeah, no, it has nothing to do with Orson Welles or that movie. Uh, I At least I don't think it does because I vaguely remember it. Tell me a story, Dan. Tell me a story. I want to start off with something a, a very different. I'm going to start off with... A poem, Riley. A poem? A poem by T.S. Eliot. Do you know a very famous poem, The Wasteland? Of course I do. Very famous piece. This is what inspired him to write that poem. And I would like to read an excerpt from it to start us off. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead, up the white road, there's always another one walking beside you, gliding wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? 
So what inspired T.S. Eliot to write that poem? It was actually a book that was written by Ernst Shackleton called South. Are you familiar with Ernst Shackleton, Riley? Not really. I know he was an explorer. Yes, and he, a very famous explorer. You could say that he was maybe one of the top three explorers of all time. There's Captain Scott, uh, Amundsen, and uh, Shackleton in terms of exploration of the South Pole. He was one of the, the, the main explorers to traverse that area, to map it out, and to push his body and, and the teams that he worked with to their, their limits. And he had one very famous expedition. It was called the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition that lasted between 1914 and 1917. And the aim of that expedition was to cross the continent of Antarctica by land. So not to circumnavigate it, but to actually land at, on one shore and cross it. Did you just say that it was a three-year expedition? 1914 to 1917. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. And and you're going to find out why it took that long. I, I knew a little bit about Shackleton before beginning my research. I didn't know a lot of the details. He's incredible. To the point where I'd say maybe one of the most resilient, inspiring figures, historical figures I've ever read about. So this expedition, the, the intent was to be able to cross and, and map out. There was some, uh, there was scientific uh, need for this expedition. And they were venturing to a place on Earth no one had ever been to before, except some penguins, maybe. So there was two ships that were employed, the Endurance, which would carry uh, the main party, Shackleton's party, uh, into the Weddell Sea. And they were aiming for a place called Vassal Bay. And from there, a team of six led by Shackleton would begin the crossing of the continent. The second ship, the Aurora, would take a supporting party under, and you're going to love this name, Captain Aeneas McIntosh to McMurdo Sound on the opposite side of the continent. And that party's job was to lay supply depots across the Great Ice Barrier as far as Beardmore Glacier. And these depots would hold the food and fuel that would enable Shackleton's party to complete their journey of, get this, 1,800 miles or 2,900 kilometers across the continent. If you were going to drive that, that would be an ordeal. Yeah, and they don't have those like caterpillar machine things that are that they use now in snow, and they don't have what do they have sled dogs? Yeah, and, and but the problem with these the dogs was feeding them and and keeping them safe and healthy. So this was going to be on foot. Wow, mind blowing. Now things go south very early. Pun intended. So the Endurance departs from a place called South Georgia Island for the Weddell Sea on the 5th of December, 1914. So I say 1914, it's the end of, of the year that this expedition starts. And they're heading for Vassal Bay. As the ship moves southwards, it begins to have to navigate through ice. And as they get closer to Vassal Bay, it gets thicker and thicker. And they encounter something called first year ice. So it's ice that's been formed for over a year and, it, and it, can, it can be quite difficult to move around it's big it's thick and it can do some serious damage to your ship if you come into contact with it so that really slows their progress deep in the Weddell Sea conditions gradually grew worse until on the 19th of January 1915 endurance becomes frozen fast in an ice flow oh my god right so they're stuck they can't go anywhere they're at the mercy of this this flow and where it goes they're not stuck in like perma ice. They're stuck in ice that's moving. Correct. Oh, 
imagine all this ice uh, they're sailing south and they're seeing ice and they're going around it and eventually they can't go around it because they're completely surrounded by it and this ice is pressed up against their ship and that's it they can't sail anywhere there's nowhere to sail because they're completely surrounded by ice oh my god wow yeah okay and it's it's the summer season there right it's 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 reverse from the northern hemisphere so this is supposed to be the time of year where these types of journeys are possible. But the problem then is you have ice that's broken up and things like this can happen. Now that doesn't happen because we have icebreakers. Right, of course. Who can easily break through that, that type of uh, condition. Now it's all mapped out, so no one has to go there. Except for scientists. I saw the thing. I know how, I know, I know how that ends. Well, and I've heard that primarily the reason why those scientists go to Antarctica now is to get away from their families and play board games. <laughs> I just realized when you said the thing, you were referencing the film, the thing. That's a good movie. I, I recently saw that, having never seen it. And that's a good Kurt Russell movie, as opposed to the, uh, the movie that shall never be mentioned again. Yes, we're not mentioning it anymore. I love the thing. It's a John Carpenter film. It's when John Carpenter made good movies. Yeah, yes. It, that's a fantastic film. I love the opening scene where the wolf is being chased through uh, or And there's that fucking scene when the guy is doing, uh, it's either chest compressions or he's got a defibrillator, remember? And the chest just breaks open and the... Very Aliens-esque. Oh, yeah. And I, I remember sitting in my chair going, oh, my God! It's I screamed. That's how I scream. Did that movie come before? That movie came after Alien. I don't know. It must have. We need Bonnie. Alien's like 79. Where? Bonnie? Do you want to know something? I know this isn't popular, but I actually like the second Aliens better than the first. Oh, I totally agree with you. Do you want to know something else that's equally unpopular is? I actually really love the David Fincher film as well. Aliens 3. I loved it. With Winona Ryder? No, oh no, not that, no, no, ooh, blech, blech, no. No, this, the third one is when they're at the penal colony. Oh yeah, that's right. That, so the Winona Ryder one's the fourth. fourth. Yeah, and it was directed by Luc Besson. And Luc Besson is a yes. great director and I expected great things of him. So when I went to see the film, I actually wanted to call him and go, Luke, what the fuck? But I didn't. I kind of like all of them. I'm going to be honest. I don't hate any of them. I love one and two. I like three. I love the most recent ones too. Uh, Prometheus. What's the last one that just came out? Oh yeah, I yeah. I like them all. I, I like the, that universe. Do you know what? I hated Prometheus, but I will defend Prometheus because it had that amazing medical pod, which was the best thing in the film. Yeah, you get in that thing and it just does surgery on you. So um, so they get trapped in this ice flow. A month later, on the 24th of February, realizing that she uh, would be trapped now until the following spring, Shackleton orders the abandonment of the ship's routine and her conversion to a winter station. So this is no longer a sailing ship. This is their base. The The ship is is their home and a prison. Yeah. They can fish and do things like that. They have, they, and they're very well provisioned. These are seasoned explorers. So they had stuff to survive and they're not a huge crew. So they hunker down and wait for the spring to come back. She drifted, the ship drifted slowly northward with the ice through the following months. When spring arrived in September, the breaking of the ice and its later movements put extreme pressure on the ship's hull. Oh. So 
Until this point, Shackleton had hoped that the ship, when released from the ice, could work her way back towards Vassal Bay. However, on the 24th of October, water begins pouring into the ship. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, my God. This is the beginning. After a few days, Shackleton uh, gave the order to abandon ship and men, provisions and equipment were transferred to camps on the ice. Ugh. All right. So before they before they had their their ship as their their living quarters, now they don't even have that. And there's no terrain. They're on an ice flow, a moving piece of ice. Oh, drifting. Oh, God, what a bad vacation. Okay. On the 21st of November, 1915. So we're now coming close to a year that they have been gone. The wreck finally slipped beneath the surface. And for almost two months, Shackleton and his party camped on this large ice floe, hoping that it would drift towards Paulette Island, which was approximately 250 miles away, where it was known that stores were cached. So the ship is gone. It's sunk. It's gone. They took with them the lifeboats off the ship. Oh, did they ever find the ship? Have they found it? They did. And what's weird is that it was in um, a basement in Belgium. Jesus, why do I ask you these things? No, I don't. I have not. I'm not aware that they they ever discovered that ship. Maybe James Cameron will get a submarine going and they'll find it. And they could film uh, Endurance with Nicole Kidman and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. After failed attempts to march across the ice to this island, Shackleton decided to set up another more permanent camp, which I love the name of the camp, Patience Camp, on another floe and and trust to the drift of the ice to take them towards a safe landing. By the 17th of March, their ice camp was within 60 miles of Paulette Island. However, they were separated by impassable ice and they were unable to reach it. On the 9th of April, their ice flow broke into two. So now the thing that has sort of kept them alive is breaking up. Uh. And Shackleton ordered the crew into the lifeboats and to head for the nearest landmass that they could find these are open boats the, the these aren't like how we would think of lifeboats now these are kind of like giant rowboats yeah I, I i know what you're talking about they're in like freezing damp conditions they spend five harrowing days at sea and these exhausted guys land their three lifeboats at elephant island which is 346 miles from where the endurance sank and I, this is this blows me away. This was the first time they had stood on solid ground for 497 days. It had been more than a year? Right. Oh. Uh. And it's not over. So Elephant Island was in a it was an inhospitable place, far from any shipping routes. Rescue by means of chance discovery was extremely unlikely from this point. It's not this is before the age of aircraft. Right? There's no no search parties coming out to get them. Their survival is completely dependent on them. Only they can get themselves out of this mess. Consequently, Shackleton decided to risk yet another open boat journey to the 720 nautical mile distance South Georgia whaling stations where this mission began and he and where he knew that help was available but whaling stations now are we talk are whaling stations i don't know are they permanent settlements or are they just places where people go to stay while they're whaling it's permanent stations primarily norwegians from what i was reading that occupied these places and did their whaling i'm assuming that there are times of year where maybe they're the whales aren't there and there's no one there right but shackleton knows these places well and knows that 
help will come there. Okay. So he takes the strongest of the tiny 20-foot lifeboats and he he actually christens it James Caird, uh, named after the expedition's chief sponsor. And uh, and he then selects five companions for the journey. Frank Worsley, who was Endurance's captain and would be responsible for navigation. Tom Crean, John Vincent, and Timothy McCarthy. And finally, the carpenter, Harry McNish. And what's interesting about McNish is that he and Shackleton did not like each other. McNish was apparently very surly and insubordinate. But Shackleton knew that this guy was going to be essential to their survival. And if anything happened, that he needed this guy with him. I totally want to play that character in the movie. You would be fantastic because you're really crusty. I'm not kissing on your goddamn bullshit, Jesus, son of a bitch. I don't even know if I'm doing Scottish. I don't know. You sound a bit like the guy from Jaws. Quint. You sound like Quint. You know that's my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, and that sort of, in reading about McNish, he did, that's exactly who he reminded me of, though, is Quint. Like, probably just not a person that you would want to spend a lot of time with, but absolutely, if there's a shark attacking or you need to cross 720 nautical miles in the Antarctic Sea, you want him with you. I wonder if McNish would just walk around singing, farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies, because Quint did that in the movie. Do you want to know something interesting? Can I tell you something interesting? It's good. You'll like this. If you must. Oh, God. Here's Riley with another anecdote. Boring. I'd rather have a bowel movement. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So, uh, Robert Shaw played Quint, extremely difficult actor to deal with. He was a raging alcoholic, and Mm -hmm. he died not long after that film was made Mm -hmm. from alcoholism, consequences of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that famous scene when they're in the boat at night, they're in the Orca, and it's night, and they're all sitting around drinking, comparing scars, and telling stories. And I don't know if you remember, remember this or not, but Quint tells the story of the sinking of the Indianapolis. Yes, famous, uh, the ship that was carrying the atomic bomb in World War II. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was on the way back. Is the bomb down there with the ship still? No, no, it had, it delivered its cargo and was on its, going to wherever its next destination was when the Japanese sank it. Well, there's a huge monologue, and I don't know if you remember it or not, where Quint describes he was on that boat and they all went into the water and the sharks relentlessly attacked them over a number of days until they're finally rescued. Yeah. Quint brought that monologue to the movie. He said to Spielberg, I think this scene needs something more. I think it needs a bit of gravitas. And he went away. And in his beautiful, drunken genius, he wrote that monologue and delivered it. And it is one of the most memorable monologues, I think, that I've ever seen in a movie. Absolutely. That that movie is, see, we're talking about great movies. That one is so much more than just a monster movie. It's two movies, two movies in one. It is the the, the ter- being terrorized by this invisible creature at the beginning mm-hmm. and the second part is a great sea uh, adventure at sea where they're trying to conquer this incredible fish and scarred so many of us i to this day am so uncomfortable going into water where i can't see the bottom because of that film and funnily enough a few years ago was visiting florida and went to coco beach and i don't know if you're familiar with coco beach it's near cape canaveral where the space shuttle uh, takes off or used to take off i went body boarding there with a friend who was staying in a uh, condo off the off the beach and i found out afterwards from a friend that that beach is the most has the most shark attacks in the united states and has the second most shark attacks in the world 
Oh. And at the time that I was there, there was a great white off the coast. And you were swimming with raw meat. I was swimming with a bodyboard, which makes me look like a seal, right? And I'm terrified of that, but I felt safe because I was, you know, in waist deep water. I wasn't out. That's where most shark attacks occur, in shallow water. And I have a real fear of them, and I it shook me a little bit. Anywho... Let's go back to, yeah. So Shackleton is preparing for this journey. He picks his uh, his five companions that he's going to try to make this final push. He refuses. I say, and again, this says a lot about Shackleton and how great of a leader he was and willing to put himself out there. He refuses to pack supplies for more than four weeks, knowing that if they did not reach South Georgia within that time, the boat and its crew would be lost. God. Yeah, the James Caird was launched on the 24th of April, 1916. And during the next 15 days, it sailed through waters of the Southern Ocean at the mercy of the stormy seas. And they were in constant peril of capsizing. And McNish bitched the whole time. God damn, both Jesus Christ. And apparently his pants were itchy. He had wool pants. That's the problem. I remember going shopping with you years ago and i you had me buy a pair of wool green pants they were very nice pants for the time why the f- i would never ask anybody to buy i'm allergic to wool well you made me buy them maybe that's why you stayed away from me so much <laughs> <laughs> okay on the 8th of may thanks to worsley's navigational skills the cliffs of south georgia come into sight but because there's always going to be a but with a story like this hurricane force winds prevented the possibility of land The party was forced to ride out the storm offshore and they were in constant danger of being dashed against the rocks. So again, they don't have, there's no motor on this boat. They've been to sea now for almost three weeks. They can see where they need to go, but they can't go because it's too dangerous to land. They can't catch a break. They cannot catch a break. That that same hurricane that kept them from landing uh, sunk a 500-ton steamer bound for South Georgia from Buenos Aires, which is pretty nuts. Maybe it was easier for them to survive being in a smaller boat, like riding the waves. I don't know. But those winds, like, anyway, it's crazy. On the following day, they were able, finally, to land on the unoccupied southern shore. So they need to get to the, the northern shore. They land on the southern shore. Because of the weather and how bad things were, they didn't feel like they could continue in their boat. They thought that it would be better to just land the ship and now go on foot to where they need to go to. So they take a period to rest and recuperate, and they start to plan out how they're going to cross this island. For their journey, the survivors were only equipped with boots they had pushed screws into to act as climbing boots, a carpenter's adds, and 50 feet of rope. But McNish did bring his bagpipes to cheer them up. And a can of haggis. Does haggis come in a can? I actually, that was my first experience uh, with Haggis. My friend Shona McGraw went to Scotland to visit family and brought me home a can of Haggis. I've had Haggis many times now and love it with turnips and mashed potatoes. Wonderful. So he, uh, they, he, he decides to make this trip, but they leave McNish, Vincent and McCarthy at the landing point on South Georgia. Hold on one sec. I'm just hearing yelling on the other side. Like the spiritual other side or the other side of the door? My my children are yelling on the other side of the door. I'd yell too if I was kept in a cage. Well, they're bad kids. Leaving McNish, Vincent, and McCarthy at the landing point on South Georgia, Shackleton traveled 32 miles 
or 51 kilometers, with Worsley and Crean over extremely dangerous mountainous terrain for 36 hours. Oh, so they didn't take McNish. He's back at camp. It was too much, his bagpipes. They were worried about avalanches. So 32 miles is more than a marathon, and it's over mountains, and it's extreme cold. It takes them 36 hours to reach uh, the whaling station at Stromness on the 20th of May. Once he got there, Shackleton immediately sent a boat to pick up the three men from the other side of South Georgia while he set to work to organize the rescue of the Elephant Island men. So by 1917, all of them are collected. And I find this is the most incredible the most incredible thing of this whole story, no one dies. Nobody died. Well, they do die, but not during this expedition. So nobody died, starved to death. Nobody just got some weird, like, burst appendix. No no mutinies, which is pretty incredible as well. The sinking of Shackleton's ship is extremely well-known. Shackleton's well-known. But what is less known is what he and his two companions experienced as they trekked across South Georgia Island. I mentioned before Mm -hmm. that Shackleton wrote a book called South and that described his experiences in the South Pole. And in this book, he describes his belief that an incorporeal being joined him and the other two during the final leg of their journey. What? He, He believed that there was a being with them a fourth person with them as they made that final journey. This is a quote from the book. When I look back at those days, I have no doubt that Providence guided us, not only across those snow fields, but across the storm white sea. I know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. I said nothing to my companions on the point, but afterwards, Worsley said to me, Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us. Crean confessed to the same idea. One feels the dearth of human words, the roughness of mortal speech in trying to describe things intangible, but a record of our journeys would be incomplete without a reference to a subject very near to our hearts. Uh, sorry to interrupt. They all independently experienced this. They all independently experienced this. Oh my God. I love that. So, and it wasn't until he brought it up that they all kind of went, yeah, we, no, we felt that too. That's incredible. I love it. They didn't come out of this all going, oh, you should have seen what happened to us. I know. Shackleton actually was very hesitant to bring it up because he was afraid that he was going to come across as being crazy. You have to remember Shackleton before this expedition, super famous, highly respected, did not need this attention before this expedition was already well known, was already considered one of the best explorers of all time. So his admitting this was only because he felt like he needed to, not because he was seeking any sort of notoriety, because the guy was notorious already. His admission resulted in other survivors of extreme hardship feeling comfortable coming forward and sharing similar experiences. And that is what makes sort of this this next part of the story interesting. This isn't a one-off. This isn't an isolated mm event this happens all the time it's a phenomenon known as the third man factor it's called third man based off the t.s Eliot poem obviously in shackleton's case it was the fourth man so the poem came the poem came first no the poem came after shackleton no but the poem the poem called it the third man and then that's where we get the title from the well the the poem refers to a third man and that's where you get the third man factor okay so yeah okay good 
So what is the third man factor? The third man is an unseen being that intervenes at a critical moment when people are in great stress or are in a life and death struggle to give comfort, aid, or support. And that's key. And it's not like they just see something. This thing actually helps them. The visions that have appeared to people have been both men and women, and sometimes even a particular person like a dead spouse, parent, or friend. These visions often speak to the person who's in distress, providing comfort, advice, or simply company. And in most cases, the presence disappears just before help arrives. Wow. So if this was a simple hallucination, why wouldn't it continue after help arrives? Right. I'm getting a bit of that Christian angels vibe here, you know? Yeah. This is where science and spirituality combine. And that's what this story is exploring. So whereas most hallucinations are disorienting and alarming, these visions are of benevolent beings who provide comfort and aid when people need it most. Now, there's other examples, as I've mentioned. One that I... uh, I love this one. 1933, British explorer Frank Smith almost becomes the first person to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Although I say that, I believe Sherpas were going to the summit of Mount Everest long before any European dude did. But we refer to it as the first because it's European. So Frank Smith becomes almost the first European to summit, but misses out. There's a bad storms. His whole party turns around and goes back. He decides to carry forward and uh, almost dies in the process. He ended up missing the summit by, I believe, a thousand feet. Later, writing in his diary, he recounted how at one point on the ascent, he reached into his pocket, pulled out a slab of Kendall mint cake, broke it in half and turned around to give it to the other, uh, give the other half to his companion. But there was no one there. And he's quoted as saying, all the time that I was climbing alone, I had a strong feeling that I was accompanied by a second person. The feeling was so strong that it completely eliminated all loneliness I might otherwise have felt. Wow. Another interesting one is Charles Lindbergh. You're familiar with him. Of course. In a baby who was kidnapped. Yeah, his baby is kidnapped and also famous for flying across the Atlantic. And it was a super long flight, was battling fatigue, Uh, near the end and it was at that point that he started to have visions of a a ghost that visited him later in his life he ended up sort of downplaying it but again it might have been more the shame of of it but he said that this ghost helped him survive that journey no autopilot right and always at danger of of crashing into the sea and that this ghost gave him advice and guidance and allowed him to land safely in paris This one, uh, I find this is the most moving of these experiences. There's an author, John Geiger, uh, who spent five years tracking down the stories of people who've experienced the third third man phenomenon, wrote a book about it called The Third Man Factor. And the very first story that he writes about uh, was about a worker, Ron DeFrancesco, who is at the World Trade Center on 9-11. DeFrancesco was on the 84th floor of the South Tower when the second plane struck. He tried to make his way down the stairwell, but was forced to lie down to avoid the flames and smoke and debris. And, you know, I can only think that if you're in that situation, you are in panic mode Mm -hmm. and you are like your body, you're not thinking anymore. You're, you're in automatic survival mode. If you're lying down and all hell is breaking loose, you're probably going into fright mode. You're curling up in a ball. Oh, I get emotional every time I talk about this one. Um, He recalls at that moment that he felt something grab his hand 
And whatever it was that grabbed him ended up leading him out of the area that he was in, got him to a stairwell and led him as far as he needed to be led to until he could go on his own. Wow. There was no one there. It wasn't another person. It wasn't someone like, it wasn't a firefighter that was escorting. And this was something that wasn't human that let him out. And he, and he survived. Yeah. And he was actually the last person to leave the South Tower before it collapsed. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, in, that's incredible. Yeah. And for us, I mean, that is such a, it's such a prevalent story. It's so iconic that moment in time because it changed everything. It, it really did. If you're listening to this, not at the time that, you know, we're recording, we're going through the the coronavirus pandemic right now. And that's, I think this is obviously going to be something that we're all going to remember. 9-11 was, uh, for those that don't remember it, you're too young, that it was such a poignant, sad, powerful, scary experience. You know, and we had all those videos of not just the crashes, but the aftermath and seeing the look on people's faces. This is so remarkable. This is so, so, so remarkable that had happened to Shackleton and to all these other explorers. There's cases of people in the jungle having the similar type things happening to them. So people in dire circumstances and in need. Dire in circumstances, people that are, are on shipwrecks, you know, floating at sea. But it's not everyone. It's not, this doesn't happen to everyone in those situations. So what are some possible explanations? Read a great article by Aaron Windower called The Mysterious Third Man Who Visits Explorers in Distress. I found that in Adventure Journal. And Aaron goes through possible explanations and then sort of talks through them. So I'm going to borrow heavily from Aaron here and uh, and just sort of explain what she, what she found. She brings one up. In 1981, an anesthesiologist postulated the freezing cold probably caused neurochemical changes in the brain, creating the early symptoms of full-fledged hypothermia. This hypothesis fits the trials endured by mountaineers, polar explorers, and maybe even some people lost at sea who are, you know, losing body temperature from being exposed to the water. But why would a Victorian era British explorer have these visions in the jungle? Why would Charles Lindbergh converse with ghostly co-pilots during his famous voyage? None of those people are freezing to death. You know, or DeFrancesco. He's not, he was not freezing to death. Absolutely. So hypothermia doesn't work. Okay. Another researcher thought it may be explained by extremely low levels of blood glucose seen in starving explorers. And this also seems extremely reasonable given that, you know, Shackleton had been gone for years. I don't know, you know, I'm sure their their diet wasn't balanced. They had been at sea for several days. They're crossing mountains and snow covered plains. I'm sure they're, they're, the chemicals in their bodies were off. But this doesn't explain Lindbergh. It doesn't explain DeFrancesco. It doesn't explain a lot of these people that you know, there's accounts of people being on desert islands and stuff like that who had food and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't explain that. So yes, it could explain. Shackleton doesn't explain all the others. Another theory is that it could be hypoxia, which would impair the function of the brain. And again, this holds for some climbers and maybe, you know, DeFrancesco, who's in that smoke choke trade center. Now, in November 2016, scientists in Switzerland made a groundbreaking discovery potentially explaining the third man phenomenon. The scientists developed a device that allowed a healthy human test subject to draw a pattern that was then replicated on the subject's back with a slight time delay. So they're drawing something and I guess there's some sort of mechanical arm that replicates what they're drawing but on their back, and there's a delay. Okay. The scientists determined that the delay between the subject's movements and the 
mirrored pattern caused the subject to misidentify the source of sensory motor input. Essentially, it caused a disconnect between the body position and senses to create the eerie feeling of a ghost in the room. And apparently that sensation was so vivid that it freaked a lot of the people out that were doing the tests and some of them quit. They didn't want to continue because it was too scary. That's sort of, and and that's an interesting thing to underline. This was scary for a lot of them. Right. But they were able to replicate a ghost in a sense. They were able to replicate the third man. These people could swear that there was someone else there with them that wasn't there. So these same scientists who announced the discovery demonstrated damage also demonstrated damage to the brain's peritotemporal junction, the part of the brain that distinguishes between the self and others, can cause visions of another person, frequently mirroring one's own movements. They demonstrated that electrical stimulation to this area can provoke similar visions. The researchers ultimately induced a vision first by exploring the cause, and finally, after over a decade of effort, demonstrating the effect. They caused a disconnect between the body and the senses, and there it was, the third man appeared. So, conclusions. The explanations of science might satisfy the mind, but they leave the spirit, and I think this is important, unfulfilled. And the most poignant Mm -hmm. elements of the third man syndrome remain unaddressed. Why did so many people at the breaking point see someone they knew? Why did they disappear the moment rescue was at hand? Why were these helpers almost always benevolent while those in the lab were not, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, in all these stories, they're providing help. In DeFrancesco's case, it's actual. It's not just like, you can do it, son. It's guiding him. It's physical assistance. And nothing can explain that yet why did these real people in distress try to aid their ghostly companion as when frank smith offered his um his cake to a ghost on everest why as in shackleton's party does the third man appear to multiple people at the same time right it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense that all three of these guys felt this thing without talking about it but no one else did at any other point that's the one that's screwing up my personal theory, which would be that in times of need, we are social animals. We're pack animals. We're meant to be with each other. I was thinking maybe in times of need, we manifest another person to be our companion so that we don't feel alone and isolated and so vulnerable. But it's the Shackleton thing that screws with that theory. Right. So all of this is to say that, you know, science is explaining how the brain could allow that to happen. What's not explained is the why. Why does that happen to some and not others? Why were these three guys experiencing that together at the same time? And to me, Riley, this is where it gets interesting because I I do believe, we talked a little bit about in the last episode about our, our Catholic upbringing I I like to think that I'm still a spiritual person, although I'm also a person of science. I believe in science. Me too. That being said, I don't think, I think you can have both science and spiritual beliefs. 
You could make the argument, for example, that God is behind the Big Bang theory. You could make the argument that we are in a, one large computer simulation and God is our programmer. It's mm-hmm. still God. It's, we still have a creator. And, and I'm not, I would never debate someone on this because I have no evidence of it. But I do think that some stuff like this certainly is interesting and fascinating. And who knows? Maybe there is forces out there that we're not aware of that are overlooking and overseeing and when necessary, helping. I love that idea. Spiritual intervention. In that way, I find that these types of stories are uplifting and beautiful, whether it's intervention from another being or whether it's a demonstration of how powerful and resilient the human spirit can be. Absolutely. You know what a vibe I got off that whole story was? I'm going to sidecar a bit here. One of my favorite books I've ever read is Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, Frankenstein. And I love it for the reasons that probably not a lot of other people love it. I just love the beautiful romantic nature of the book and how powerful some of the images are. To me, it's not a horror novel in any way, shape or form. And you can argue that with me for days but no i do i agree with you because he's not villainous in the the monster's not villainous in the least bit no he's just he's a victim he's a victim of too much ambition but i i would argue that of of stephen king's it i don't think it is a horror book i think the it is what um the monster in the book is the catalyst to the story i don't think it's the focus i think i don't think pennywise is the most important thing in the book i think the relationship that those that those people have in it is the book. But anyway, that's another conversation. Towards the end of Frankenstein, um, the monster is being pursued by Dr. Frankenstein, who's furious at the monster for killing his uh, fiance. And he's just gone mad with his desire to undo what he, he has created. And they end up in the Arctic. They end up, I don't know if it's the South Pole or North Pole. I don't think it matters. I think it's North Pole. I think so too. And do you remember they're alone? It's just Frankenstein pursuing the monster. Oh, and that's the scene where they start making clay pottery. And the Righteous Brothers come on and the monster puts his hands over Dr. Frankenstein's hands. And it's very beautiful. You have no idea how much I fucking hate Ghost. Hate that movie. (laughs) If it wasn't for Whoopi Goldberg, it would just be a trash can movie. But anyway... You took away like my moment, you bitch. So there's it's just, it's a beautiful image at the end of Frankenstein when they're alone in the Arctic creator confronting creation. And it's just this amazing, but it's also so isolated and so far away and they're both mm-hmm. completely mad. It just reminded me of that when you were talking about the long, arduous journey that Shackleton had to go on to save him and his crew. That journey is incredible on its own. And I told that story because I think it, builds up to that moment, right? It, it gives you a sense of what he had endured for years leading up to that moment. It's also interesting too, don't you think that that never happened prior? Like when they were in their open, their lifeboats as the, like the whole team mm-hmm. and they were looking for, they, eventually they land on, ele- like why didn't that happen there? Why didn't it happen when they were on the ice flow for years? Like Maybe the need wasn't as profound. Maybe they weren't, maybe the circumstances weren't as dire. When they were facing down the hurricane before they landed on set, like, I, why not at other times? Why didn't Captain Scott? What about a whole bunch of other things? Like, what about those guys that crashed, the soccer team that crashed in the Andes? I mean, that was bad. Oh, the uh, alive. Yeah. Why didn't they have that experience? Well, Riley, I think uh, that, I think that's it. What do you think? I love that story. Thank you. I didn't know anything about that. 
You're very welcome. I feel now actually historically more enriched. So if anyone ever brings up Shackleton, I have a a knowledge of him. You should look up old pictures of him and start dressing as him. No, I'm going to dress like McNish. I'm obsessed with McNish. I'm going to go look him up. I have a really nice uh, top hat I'd like you to wear. I actually own a top hat. I don't. That doesn't surprise me. I have a bowler as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because I love them. I have buckle shoes. You do. All right, folks, that's it. Again, if you'd like to see some of the things that we're talking about and you find typing uh, into a Google search bar too difficult, you can always go and visit our Twitter and Facebook sites where we uh, will share some of the things that we've discovered there. As well, if you have any ideas for shows that you'd like to hear Riley and I uh, talk about, you could share uh, that with us through those mediums. We love that. We love unexpected suggestions. Love it. And even if you have questions for us, if uh, you would like to say hello, we are always welcome uh, to that type of, um, of interaction with you. It lets us know that you're out there. And we love you. And we do. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Or evening. Or morning. Just have a wonderful whatever. I'm not kissing on your goddamn boat, you Jesus son of a bitch. Goddamn boat, Jesus Christ. I-